Good evening and welcome to today's panel discussion on new labour, xenophobia and immigration. My name is Naj Rashid and that's Malcolm James over there. We're both PhD students in the Department of Sociology here at LSE. Malcolm will be introducing our speakers and chairing the discussion afterwards, but I'm going to start off by saying a few words about the impetus for organising this event. Before I do that, can I ask you to all make sure that your mobile phones are switched off? So, why are we having this panel discussion today? During New Labour's tenure in government, issues around immigration have been key political flashpoints. Asylum, EU accession and managed migration have all been controversial policy areas. At the same time, particularly over the last year, we have arguably seen a resurgence of xenophobia and racism in the UK. This can be seen in the BNP's success in the European elections last year, as well as the rise of organisations such as the English Defence League. As a general election draws ever closer, this event is an opportunity to look back at New Labour's legacy. Immigration is, of course, discussed at great length in the media and by politicians and policymakers. There is, however, seemingly very little diversity in what these voices are saying. So in organising this panel, we've tried to bring together alternative voices from across the board, beyond academia, to talk around these issues. So before handing over to Malcolm, I just want to thank the Migration Studies Unit uh, for letting us organise this event under their banner. Um, and in particular to Eko um, Thielemann, the director, and um, Carolyn Armstrong for all her help in getting this event off the ground. So. Okay. Um, yeah, thank you very much. Um, I should just say before I introduce the speakers that the event's being podcast. Um, so when we get around to the comment section, that may be that you're being recorded as well, so just bear that in mind. Um, so um, let me introduce in, um, in running order um, the speakers on the panel today. Um, we have um, Aaron Kanani over on my far right from the Institute of Race Relations. The Institute of Race Relations is responsible for producing research um, and analysis that aims to inform the struggle for racial justice in Britain, Europe and internationally. Aaron is the author of The End of Tolerance, Racism in the 21st Century Britain and editor of the quarterly journal Race and Class. Um, Professor Neil Yuval Davis um, is director of the Research Centre on Migration, Refugees and Belonging at the University of East London. She's written extensively on theoretical and imperial, um, empirical aspects of nationalism <laughs> and imperialism, um, of nationalism, racism, citizenship, belonging and gender relations in Britain and Europe, Israel and other settler societies. Her uh, 1997 book, Gender and Nation, has now been translated into seven different languages. Eight different languages. Um, she's currently working on a book called Identity, Citizenship and Security, an Intersectional Analysis of Contemporary Politics of Belonging. Um, to my right here is Joseph Harker. Um, Joseph's the assistant comment editor at The Guardian newspaper and a prolific commentator on racism in the UK. Um, Joseph has recently written, um, you can all see what Joseph has written on, on the webpage, but Joseph has recently written on the decision to allow BMP party members to continue teaching at schools and on John Denham's controversial proclamation that ethnic minorities are no longer disadvantaged in Britain. Um, so what we're going to do is we're going to hear first um, from Aaron, who's going to talk for about 15 minutes and then each other speaker will talk for 15 minutes. Aaron's going to talk on how new labour policies of managed migration and community cohesion have ushered in new divisions and increased xenophobia following the rise um, of the BNP. Um, and I'll let him take the podium. Thank you. 
Thank you. Um, okay, thank you for inviting me to uh, contribute to this discussion, which is, um, as people have said, very, very important at the present time, very, very timely. Um, can everyone hear me okay? Yeah? I want to begin my presentation by talking about the way in which the world today can no longer be imagined as it was half a century ago, as divided into neatly separated nations, each a separate ship on the sea of humanity. Today, rich and poor, first world and, world and third, live virtually and actually in ever greater proximity in a world of extreme and intimately lived inequality, deprived of strong legitimating discourses. So what people call globalization, which I would describe as the embedding of, of most of the world's population in a system of free market capitalism, has, has led to epic social upheavals in which millions of people in Africa, Asia and the Middle East have been forced to leave their homes as their existing livelihoods collapsed around them, or as a result of the warfare, the ethnic conflict, the political repression that I were, would argue were symptoms of states' inability to manage um, this so-called integration um, into the global market. Yet, when these, these migrants, asylum seekers and refugees have come to Europe, they've uh, faced a situation where for exactly the same underlying reasons to do with this, this kind of um, process of globalization and what it means, um, for those reasons, they themselves have then been demonized as a kind of threat to the, the global economic hierarchy that divides our wealth from their poverty. Okay? So in place of, a, of an understanding of what causes that migration comes a farrago of aggressively promoted stereotypes that actually reflect more the West's own anxieties. And so we've seen the media manufactured stories of bogus asylum seekers and foreign scroungers going hand in hand with a deadly silence on the West's actual role in Africa, Asia and the Middle East and the ongoing devastation which that role inflicts. And we, we used to have a slogan um, in the anti-racist movement that was coined by um, Sivan Anden, the director of the Institute of Race Relations, um, which was a kind of answer to um, the, the kind of um, accusation that was thrown at um, black and Asian people in the 70s and 80s, why are you here? And, and the answer in this slogan was, we are here because you were there. In other words, the process of, of colonialism and imperialism that had, that had um, made countries in Asia and Africa and the Caribbean part of this multiracial entity called the British Empire was exactly the reason why then people from those countries came to settle here. Not as immigrants, in fact, technically as simply settlers moving from one part of this Commonwealth colonial entity to another part. So we are here because you were there. And today, for the new migrants, asylum seekers and refugees, the slogan is, we are here because you are there. The you referring to the economic policies of globalisation which Western governments have promoted. And the very same process of globalisation, neoliberal globalisation, which led to this, this mass displacement around the world. In Britain itself has produced a new kind of relationship between the state and, the, and society, which I think is central to understanding these issues around racism, immigration, the rise of BNP, New Labour. 
Let me explain what I mean. Um, this ascendancy of this globalised version of capitalism since the 1980s diminished the credibility of nation-states as vehicles for the incremental improvement of people's welfare. And it's this that created the space for new labour to, to usher in really a kind of new principle of state legitimacy, um, which, which said instead of, instead of seeing the nation-state as a vehicle for um, raising welfare, the welfare of the population, inst and instead the new principle is the principle of, of the market state, which, which instead of being interested in welfare, seeks to maximise the opportunities of individuals to participate in the market. So public services therefore shift from welfare provision per se to a focus on enabling individuals to properly participate in a market-based society as workers and consumers, for example, through welfare-to-work policies, which replace the straightforward idea of unemployment benefit. So the key point here is that the state's job becomes a matter of trying to produce the right kind of individuals for the market, rather than for the market to serve society. And if markets can't find a use for an individual, then neither can society. So insecurity and vulnerability are the hallmarks of this new order, in which entire communities, whether marked out by race or class, can be socially abandoned to poverty, low-level violence and disorder. And it's the children of these abandoned communities who are disdained as chavs and hoodies and who are imprisoned in their thousands under powers designed to tackle antisocial behaviour. In the case of Britain's Muslim and migrant communities, there's been, in addition, this new Labour policy of community cohesion, which, at its best, sought to manage the fallout from a racially divided society by arranging for young people from different communities to have more social interaction. At its worst, it involved an attempt to socially engineer a transformation in the perceived value systems of young Muslims. More recently, the Preventing Violent Extremism programme has taken this thinking further by attempting to mobilise the entire Muslim population in a wholly misconceived process of cultural transformation. All of these policies need to be set in the wider context of a whole series of new labour measures which, in the name of empowerment, seek to modify the behaviour of entire communities to fit in with the state's idea of what values are acceptable. What new labour calls its managed migration policy can be seen in this context as the attempt to control immigration to select the right kinds of migrants and produce the right kind of labour market. So, in a, you know, to, to put it in a schematic way, yes to Polish graduates, no to Romanian gypsies, yes to African IT, IT workers, no to African asylum seekers. And since the 1990s, the lower levels of Britain's economy have become increasingly centred on short-term, non-binding, subcontracted workforces which can be hired and fired at will and are constantly threatened with replacement by cheaper labour from elsewhere. So this neoliberal transformation of Britain's labour market has led to an increased demand for rightless migrant workers to exploit and effectively new labour has used this new migration and this new, um, this new opportunity that it offers to reshape parts of a labour market to be more so-called flexible. Just as neoliberal globalisation produced mass displacement around the world, in Britain it also caused this ongoing casualisation of Britain's labour market, which has actually been the real driving force for the increased migration we've seen over the last decade. It's not that there's suddenly been a lot more migrants out there looking to scrounge from our welfare state. It's about the changes in this country, not, out, not in other countries, that's really driving this increase. 
So take, for example, Filipino nurses coming to work in Britain, which is one of the larger categories of non-EU migrant workers. They leave behind a country which is forced to spend eight times more on servicing its debt to Western bankers than it does on its own healthcare system. And because of the resulting crisis in the Philippines' own hospitals, even qualified doctors there are seeking to work abroad as nurses. In the UK, there are legions of qualified Filipino nurses who have been recruited through agencies, end up working in the kitchens or scrubbing the toilets in hospitals and private nursing homes. Their home country is effectively kept out of bankruptcy by the remittances they send back, $260 million um, from Britain to the Philippines in 2003. And Britain's own healthcare is subsidised by this cheap migrant labour force. But, so, but, but those, those benefits to Britain depend on this backdrop of debt-induced poverty in the third world and the sacrifices of migrant workers who suffer the human costs of degrading work and family separation. Our failure to understand this deeper reality to migration leads to counterproductive attempts to reduce immigration through authoritarian policing. Carrying out more workplace raids to catch so-called illegals or introducing ID cards only fosters the growth of a hidden undocumented workforce beyond the reach of even the minimal health and safety protections that accrue to other workers. So while newspapers daily speculate on the number of migrants coming in, nobody counts for deaths and injuries of migrants in workplace incidents unless they occur in a spectacular fashion, such as with the death of 21 Chinese cockle pickers in Morecambe Bay in February 2004. Because politicians refuse to tackle this underlying demand for a highly exploitable workforce, all of their tough talk promising to lower immigration inevitably ends in failure to bring about any such reduction and at the same time fuels the dangerous perception that immigration is out of control. The alternative which neither party wishes to consider is to begin the process of reforming the deregulated labour markets into which migrant workers are recruited, strengthening the rights of all workers in these sorts of jobs, bringing real change on issues such as health and safety, working hours, trade union rights and a living wage, brings advantages to migrant workers and the existing low-paid workforce alike, breaking out of a downward spiral of intense competition and worsening conditions that both are locked into. And a necessary first step in any such process would be to regularise the underclass of currently undocumented migrant workers. At present, however, we prefer to let the poor and the still poorer fight over jobs and public services while seeking artificial unities in an imagined Britishness. Gordon Brown's resort um, early in his premiership to a cr crudely nationalist slogan of British jobs for British workers shows how far we are from realising any kind of genuine left-wing alternative on uh, immigration policy. Instead, what we've seen is large sections of the liberal intelligentsia, um, including people like Polly Toynbee and David Goodhart, um, and a whole, a whole uh, series of Labour politicians, all jumping over themselves to echo the same arguments that, we, that we've come to expect from columnists on the Mail, the Express and the Sun, simplistically blaming immigrants for the crisis of the welfare state, for low wages, housing shortages and the atomisation of society. By implication, they all agree with the BMP. And it's little wonder that racism has not gone away in Britain, but thanks to this culture of official bigotry, become more acceptable. The British National Party and the English Defence League um, 
I think what's striking, if you, if you look at, at their, their political rhetoric, is the way in which they've actually been educated by mainstream political culture in how to present their arguments. I mean, the BNP has not had a better um, political advisor than, than what it's learned inadvertently from New Labour. Um, the English Defence League even borrows New Labour's distinction between moderate and extremist Muslims to justify its Islamophobia. Um, the gap between the far right and the centre-left has narrowed massively on issues of, around immigration and multiculturalism. At the same time, the centre-left has less and less to offer working-class voters whom it has left behind except empty words about choice, respect and responsibility. In a nutshell, the centre-left and a large part of the liberal milieu <laughs> has accepted the extreme right's arguments about immigration and cultural identity. The, I think the response to the recent book by Christopher Caldwell is illustrative. His book, um, entitled Reflections on the Revolution in Europe, Immigration, Islam and the West, um, came out last year. He is um, more or less a neoconservative columnist for the um, Weekly Standard uh, magazine in the US, and he writes here for the Financial Times, I think. Um, the book talks about immigration to Europe over the last 30 years, and... Um, which he sees as predominantly um, an Islamic immigration. And he argues that Europe cannot be the same with different people in it, so that Muslim immigration is a threat to European identity. The, the liberal response to this argument has been interesting, because it's been interestingly divided. There are some who've said, well, it's an, it's a, it's an exaggeration to say that Europe will be changed by this immigration. The people coming will, by and large, integrate themselves and be just like other Europeans, a kind of normal liberal argument around immigration. Then there are other liberals who actually want to applaud Cordwell for supposedly revealing this kind of disturbing truth about immigration and the threat it represents, and who say that we have to stop uh, being soft on this issue in order to defend Europe's liberal values. What both of those responses share is an assumption but it's automatically a bad thing if European identity is transformed by immigration, Muslim or otherwise. So many of these liberals would be the same ones who you might well hear saying slogans like um, integration is a two-way street, um, which is actually um, the idea that integration is a mutual two-way process of, of Adaptation, it's an idea that's enshrined at the European level in the so-called common basic principles on immigration and integration. But does anyone really take seriously that idea that Europe itself will be substantially transformed or are we just paying lip service to these principles? Um, it doesn't seem to me that anyone is, is seriously making that argument that um, such a transformation of Europe might, might be something positive. And in fact, it seems to me that that's fundamentally feared across the liberal and the conservative ends of, of that part of the political spectrum. Um, and I, I mean, I, in a way, the, the, um, the, the kind of alternative approach is to, is to reframe the question and to, and to ask a different question, which is whether in an era of globalisation, it's not so much can immigrants integrate into Europe, but can Europe integrate itself into the rest of the world? Thank you very much.
very much, Aaron. Um, Nira's going to speak now for 15 minutes um, on refugees, citizenship, belonging, and new Labour's Britishness policy, um, project from an intersectional perspective. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, yeah, I can't talk about everything, but I'm very pleased that Arun uh, spoke on some of the things that need to be uh, said. Some months ago, as many of you may remember, after the European elections, David Dimbledy invited Nick Griffith, the BNP leader and new MEP, to take part in the program Question Time. The invitation was controversial, but the argument was that as a, uh, he represents a large body of voters, it's his right, like any other representative of an elected British party. However, the format of the program that evening did not follow the usual one, but was focused on attempts to delegitimize him and his positions. One of the things that struck me when I was watching that program is that although it took part during the time of the postal strike, which was at the headlines of all the newspapers and the, and, and the news and other medias, no question regarding the strike was allowed to be asked during that program. I'm sure the reason for this was that the producers of the program knew that if it arose, Nick Griffin would be the only one of all the political leaders on that program sitting around the table who would support the strikers. He does not have to play the responsible political writers, the leader, the modernizer, the savior of the crushed uh, British com uh, com economy. He can allow himself to be seen as populist on the side of the little men. There is no doubt in my mind that this is the main reason, rather than racism and xenophobia, that the BNP's appeal and that of similar organizations in the UK and the rest of the West and the rest of the world has been growing. At the same time, of course, racism and xenophobia play a crucial part in the defensive identity discourse, to use Manuel Castell's expression, which is part of the reaction not just to neoliberal globalization and its pitfalls, but also the changes in governmentalities and governabilities which emerged as a result. This has been clear for quite a few years now, but governments' responses to the global economic crisis, especially the banking crisis, have made it so much more obvious. It is important to emphasize, uh, however, here that racism and xenophobia is not specific to the white working class or even to whites in general, and that the forms that it can take are religious as well as racial and ethnic. I don't have the time today to go into much details, and I'm very grateful that some of the issues about uh, globalization and migration has been uh, discussed in more details. I think both issues of migration and issues of securitization, especially after 9-11, but also already before since the end of the uh, Cold War when the world militaries were looking for new occupations. Um, I think um, this needs to be um, look at the context of what uh, the Cold and Malcolm mentioned my uh, forthcoming book on intersectional politics of be uh, belonging. In that book, I'm looking at various contesting political projects of belonging, contemporary one, which are focusing on citizenship, nationalism, religion, and cosmopolitanism. 
What I'll try and do today is discuss briefly the overall changes in the relationships between government and citizens, as well as examine the transition from multiculturalism to multifascism on the one hand and so-called social cohesion agenda on the other hand, and why they fail to answer people's anxieties in the social level, let alone the political and the economic. While part of the explanation of the growing disenchantment of citizens with the state and political parties relate to the centralities in these societies of the multicultural uh, question, to quote Stuart Hall, and the growing ethnicization of states, part of these changes can also be seen as a result of internal shifts within the state apparatus and the relative power of different branches of the state which affect the relationship between citizens and the state and their sense of accessibility and claim on it. More and more agencies and apparatus of the state in more and more countries have been privatized under neoliberalism. This raises the old question of what constitutes the specific sphere of the state to differentiate from the sphere of civil society, which itself, of course, needs to be subdivided to economic, social, and domestic spheres. In one poll of the debate is a classical Weberian definition in which the state has a monopoly of the legitimate use of uh, physical power, and on the other hand, the Foucauldian perspective, according to which no such specific powers can be seen universally as the exclusive property of the state. Part of the difference between these two positions is a different theorization of the meaning of power, which I don't have time to go into. But part of the difference between the two, I believe, is also a result of the different historical times in which Weber and Foucault have written their theorizations of the state. As Foucault pointed out, late modernity brought with it new technologies of governance, a governmentality in which much of the work has done within the subjectivities of the citizens rather than by the state exercising the external powers in its disposal. However, given the number of civil wars throughout the globe in which the military and other state sources of the state are used against particular sections of its own populations, such a Foucauldian portrayal of contemporary states seem partial as b at best. A related question is whether under globalization the state as a, is a container of power is withering away, becoming weaker and less able to impose its power on other social, economic and political carriers of power. This is an important question, whether or not we believe in the Weberian or others' definition of the power of the state. Saskia Sassen argues that rather than weakening overall, the state has changed internally, and that the executive power has strengthened on account of the leg legislative branches of the state. With the privatization of the state, a lot of the regulative tasks of the legis legislative have been lost. And at the same time, it is virtually exclusively the executive branch which negotiates with other national and supranational governance executives, such as the EU, the UN, the World Bank, the World Trade uh, Organization, as well as with private national and especially transnational corporations and banks. This is an important observation which can explain some of the growing alienation of individuals from the state. 
This disenchantment is particularly important in countries like Britain, where voting in elections is only to elect members of the parliament rather than also the head of the executive. At the same time, as in parliamentary democracies, in, in, in others, the formal endorsement of particular parties to have the right to rule the state is what gives the state legitimacy. Hence the growing worry of governments of the lack of involvement of the electorate in these processes. Of course, this worry also drives ruling powers in non-democracies, but I'm not going to get into that. I would argue, however, that uh, Sassen's position is somewhat over-optimistic and that states have not only shifted the internal balance of powers, but are also suffering overall a certain depletion of their powers. As a recent economic crisis has shown, with the growing entanglements and dependencies, not only of local and global markets, but also of the local private and public institutions, various states have been forced to bail out banks and large corporations for fear of total economic collapse, while at the same time, the governability of state agencies to reinforce regulations to that same private uh, sector, like with the bonuses in the banks and so on, has been highly limited. A sense of belonging is about feeling at home, feeling safe, and if not necessarily feeling in control, at least feeling able to generally predict expectations and rules of behavior. It is not surprising, therefore, that under such conditions, many feel that their entitlements as citizens who belong are under threat or even already being taken away from them. Of course, it is important to emphasize the differential effects of uh, this on people who are differentially located so socially, economically, and politically, let alone spatially, hence the importance of intersectional analysis. The privatization of state services and the transformation of those who have not been privatized has created a new discourse of belonging. Part of the popularity of Margaret Thatcher in Britain has been the fact that for the first time all citizens' consumers were encouraged to apply for shares in the new privatized utilities or buy their council flats, offering, at least formally, new arenas of ownership and control, illusionary and um, and bringing about new uh, financial burdens and lack of control, as many of them prove ultimately to be, both to the people involved and to the global financial system as a whole. In the new politics of belonging of the citizen as consumer, the users have contractual rights and the providers formal targets for their expected performance but they have no ability, directly or indirectly, via the elected representatives to affect the overall strategies and priorities of these services. This construction of the citizen as consumer has had profound effects on both the political and social rights of citizens. They have very limited access to the agencies of the state that get strengthened under this condition, as I said, mainly this in executive branches, the state, which work directly with the dominant capitalist agents in civil society, local and, uh, locally and globally, as well as with other executive forces. Under most parliamentary democ democracies, citizens have no direct influence on the executive who are elected either by the head of government or by the leaders of political uh, parties. 
And with the privatization of many of the agencies of the state, there, there is much less decision and regulatory uh, powers to all of them. And in Britain, it's not only that, that even one of the two representative houses, the House of Lords, they have no really effect uh, access who is going to be there and who is not. The most important effect of neoliberal de uh, deregulation has been that more and more state-run services had to start acting according to private sector corporation principles where economic cost rather than social impact has come to occupy the highest priorities. In many cases, state subsidies were removed or increasingly reduced to market prices, and market prices had to be paid and procurement had to be put out to public open tender. Even in places such as remote rural areas uh, in, in the West and not so remote in the South, where non-profitability has prevented private companies from bidding and the old state-run utility company retained the sort of monopoly, the citizen had to pay more for the same services, where often no more resources for the infrastructure development were available anymore. Okay. The overall results of these policies have not only been the growing social and economic polarization of societies, a growing corruption and social nihilism, but to a certain extent an undermining of the hard and soft infrastructure required for the successful operation of new liberal globalized markets themselves. In terms of contemporary politics of belonging, it has undermined the liberal social con contract between citizens and the states. At the time when in the post-colonial world, as well as in the West, the discourse of human rights has become hegemonic, even if contested, and expectations for the good life after independence have been high, the failure of these expectations have had strong impact, especially in a world in which global communications and mass migrations have exposed people to styles of life they might not have been able to imagine before. A collective political project of belonging based on loyalty to the state one lives in cannot be sufficient under such condition as long uh, as normative basis of the contract between state and citizen in their liberal mutual rights and duties to each other. This is one of the main reasons for the ethnosization of the nation states. Also, with the growing hegemony of neoliberal globalization, and especially after 9-11, multiculturalism as a guiding principle for diversity management has lost in many countries its hegemonic position. If multiculturalism has been the project for the reform of the welfare state in the 1970s and 80s, it should not be surprising that with the growing privatization of the state and the neoliberal globalization, as well as its securitization, especially after 9-11, its provisions should also be cut severely. As Carl Schirrup stated in his book on what he calls the European dilemma, under such conditions, policymakers are caught between promoting national and European solidarities on the one hand and universal social justice in their welfare state allocations on the other hand. In the UK, Trevor Phillips, as the chair of the CRE, 
declared the death of multiculturalism and throughout Europe under the guise of so-called mainstreaming, new pressures have been applied to minority members to prioritize their integration into the hegemonic national collectivity in the name of social cohesion. Moreover, where multiculturalism has not disappeared, it has often been transformed into what some of us are calling multi-faithism. Counter to the intention of many of the policy makers who instigated this, these policies have strengthened predisposition towards racism and xenophobia rather than diluted them. Certain changes have taken place in the governmentality of difference and diversity as well as of migration in Western society, associated but not wholly determined by the aftermath of 9-11, which meant that transatlantic project of multiculturalism had been transformed as a form of common sense, even where it has not ended officially. Paradoxically, the alternative political project of belonging that emerged in its stead has been at the same time more um, a, either more assimilatory social cohesion or efficient generic services of migrants and immigrants from everywhere, which would dichotomous between the locals and the immigrants, but we no longer fund projects of specific migrant community. So this is on the one hand, and on the other hand, segregated faith communities with more or less successful and or legitimate incorporation of legal pluralism, especially but not exclusively in the realm of personal law. Faith, unlike race and even country of origin when it comes to members of the national collectivity, becomes the legitimate naturalizing signifier of difference and separate community organization in the so-called post-racist era. Although, of course, in reality, this has been to a large extent a euphemism of constructing Muslims as the insiders-outsiders. This has come out very clearly, for instance, in Tony Blair's speech in 2006 on multiculturalism. Probably the most surprising aspect of the speech has been Blair's suggestion that the way forward for social cohesion of members of different faith communities is to organize mutual visits and common activities between classes of different faith schools which are being encouraged by the British government, which, uh, while not challenging at all the naturalized boundaries of people of different faith as the only legitimate sub-communities in British social cohesive national community. The centrality of faith organizations in its civil society structure has made British society more similar to the American model, but all over Europe, religious, religion and religious organizations have come to occupy more central and salient role in civil society. But I will not go um, into it and also what happened in the South. Given the constraints of the governability of contemporary states, including well-established Western states, the scale of migration and the nature of contemporary transport and especially communication technologies, such social and political agenda as social cohesion on a national scale is doomed to failure, except in states which are in war situation. Even there, surveys, for example, in Israel on growing alienation of certain sections of the youth and infighting among the Palestinians, especially between Fatah and Hamas, can show, such an agenda is often more a wishful thinking. 
The close connection between the social cohesion agenda and the global war on terrorism, with their common exclusionary rhetoric and often policies, where the different other, often the Muslim different other, are therefore not incidental. It is important to emphasize, however, that it is not only Western societies that are continuously grappling with issues of pluralism and heterogeneity, but it is also very much at the heart of the social and political agenda of many societies in the global south. This is so not only because of the ways in which borders and boundaries of their states and nations were originally constructed when they gained independence, often in, in the south as a result of inter-imperial power arrangements, but also because of the effects of more recent events partly located in the south, such as natural disasters and wars, and partly as a result of the growing restrictions on immigration to the north, as well as the global at the global economic crisis. In some cases, like in many African states, okay, such political projects of belonging would have differential effects on different members of society, located differentially along gender, class, place of living, age, sexuality, ethnicity, etc. Similarly, they cannot be understood only within the container boundaries of specific states as people's belongings these days are multi-layered and neoliberal globalization in all its aspects ensures interdependencies. To conclude then, racism and xenophobia cannot be seen in isolation from more general issues of the constructions of citizenship in contemporary neoliberal globalization and the governmentalities and governabilities associated with it globally, regionally, and locally. Only the constructions of alternative political projects of belonging in which differences are encompassed by equality, multi-layer belonging is not seen as threatening, and political and social loyalty is not considered as a zero-sum game under the sensibilities which construct contemporary securitization discourse of state and society would equip us with alternative collective imagination necessary to counteract the hegemonic common sense in which racialized migrants are constructed as a culprits to all evil. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Nira. Um, we'll end this session um, with Joseph Harker. Joseph is going to talk um, about racism, immigration, integration, Britishness, <coughs> and the white working class. Thank you very much. <coughs> and get all that in while at the same time uh, trying not to duplicate some of the ground that uh, Aaron and Nira have already covered but um, just say thanks very much for inviting me uh, it's great to be here and to speak here at the LSC which is a obviously it's a hugely respected institution I think if I'm going to start on anything um, maybe one common thread of new neighbours, xenophobia, immigration in the whole debate is at the heart of it is difference and how people deal with difference um, whether, uh, um, whether that is especially with, in terms of visible difference, but in terms of you know, people with different languages, different culture, different, different, uh, who have origins in different parts of the world. And dealing with difference has never been a natural new labor territory. If you go back and you can probably look at most political parties, and, and it's, in a way it's quite ironic that the uh, only one time as, as a, a, someone who's been born and raised in, in Britain um, that I've actually felt that a Prime Minister has understood uh, the minority experience has been under John Major and the Conservatives. When 
regardless of the horrible, nasty party that was around him, you'd at least felt that John Major, as someone who grew up in Brixton, he had a natural affinity and understanding of, of, of Britain's migrant populations. And when you get um, Tony Blair, who's, you know, born, you know, raised at a very posh public school in the, in the north of England, and the people around him who have all similar backgrounds, and now we have Gordon Brown, who's kind of come from a very uh, mono-ethnic upbringing. And you can look at David Cameron and see exactly the same. Um, and plus all the Tory leaders that have been in, in, in the, during the New Labour era. You can see that our political leadership hasn't really, has never really bought into the idea of understanding a multicultural society. Um, there was, in the 1990s, um, and it, it, it might have been coincidental, but there was, a, at least as a sense for myself as someone growing up... Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd seen, you know, the 1970s and the kind of Notting Hill uh, riots, carnival riots, the 1980s, and we had Brixton, Topsturth, uh, Southall, all up, all up in flames, and this Lord Scarman era. And I was working in the um, in the Black Press in the 19 late 1980s and early 1990s, and there did seem a sense that at least we were getting somewhere that people were beginning to understand what the issues were about racism and exclusion. And that continued uh, through the 1990s and, and culminating in uh, when New Labour did come to power and Jack Straw, uh, having been given the green light by the Daily Mail, um, agreed to set up the McPherson Inquiry to investigate the, 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 uh, to look into the investigation of the murder of Stephen Lawrence. And in that period when we were hearing reports of the police and how they, how seasoned experts, uh, murder squad detectives had ignored uh, massive, massive amounts of evidence and failed to follow up leads. And the shock that Britain, that you felt that the nation was feeling about the incompetence bordering on racism or not bordering on racism, probably blatant racism in, in many cases, you got, you got a sense that, um, that the, the nation at large was actually at, on, at last on board and it culminated in the inquiry report itself in February 1999 when um, the Race Relations Amendment Act was, was, was put forward and, and uh, the, 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 the whole um, way that British institutions started to look at themselves and examine themselves for their internal discriminatory practices uh, was at last, um, last uh, realised and at last acknowledged. That lasted, that period, that golden era, let us call it, lasted for about a thousand days until the two planes went into the Twin Towers. And immediately on, well not immediately, but starting then we saw a, a, a reining back on that whole idea, the whole idea of difference, the whole idea of, of, of uh, you know, um, of, of how the nation treats its minorities, especially given that ethnic minorities were poorer, had less power, were generally marginalised and certainly were institutionally discriminated against. At the same time you saw a rise of, of um, it was almost in response to uh, the second Tory drubbing at the polls in 2001, you saw the media start to pick up on issues which they thought might bring a Conservative government back, namely immigration. And we started seeing stories emerge in the press about, you know, rising immigration, immigration out of control, and these kind of stories, which started off in the kind of in the right-wing tabloids, um, and then and were taken up, for example, in the Daily Express, just purely as a as a as a, a last desperate throw of a, of a dying newspaper to try and generate some interest. 
um, and to pander to uh, the worst elements of, of, of bigotry. Um, and then they started to gain traction. It tied in with, you know, rice in plots that in, turned out never were, but that didn't really matter. Um, and the Islamic the, 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 the immigrants coming in and plotting to blow us all up. And um, again, we saw that, uh, we, we saw the language of new labor start to change, and they, they responded to that not by um, challenging the stories, but by starting to clamp down on immigration under Jack Straw first, then, Ch then David Blunkett, then Charles Clark. In 2005, despite all these clampdowns, it didn't stop Michael Howard and his kind of pernicious election campaign, Are You Thinking What I'm Thinking?, in which it was a, then a desperate throw of a very unpopular Tory opposition to try and raise their profile, to try and tap into that hidden fear that still existed about Britain's black and brown populations. It's, looking back, it, 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 uh, it didn't work for Michael Howard, but interesting enough, it did work when he first tried it. The, the polls started to narrow. And then he was expecting it to work in the way that when Margaret Thatcher in 1978 said, we are being swamped by an alien culture. That very much worked for her and brought in a lot of votes that had been, uh, a lot of support that had been growing for the National Front, brought that into the Tory party. But where Michael Howard went wrong was he kept repeating the line. He kept repeating it in press conference after press conference. And it eventually became obvious that that was his only policy. He had nothing else to offer apart from the trying to stoke up fears of immigration. And the British public, thankfully, rejected that. Now, Labour has responded. Um, despite all this, Labour has, in, in, in the whole ethos of Labour, the idea of triangulation, we won't, we won't oppose anything, we'll try to meet everyone halfway. Never really came out strongly against the whole scare stories about immigration. It tried to accommodate those views and bring them into the broad church. So as I was saying, we saw um, various clampdowns that, 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 that happened. Um, and, and, the, and so the, 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 the notion of immigration being a threat to British nationality began to grow unchallenged. Um, we, um, without doubt, there's a, in people's minds, um, there is a hierarchy of immigration. There's a, there's a hierarchy of, of the kind of people we consider immigrants and the people we don't. People who are American, Australian, New Zealand come here happily, they work here, they mix. Um, they're not considered immigrants. They're not the kind of people who are focused on when the scare stories happen, even though there are large numbers of those from those countries um, based here. Some of them even in this room, I'm sure. Um, but that's not what people... We have, um, you know, Irish immigration... Irish immigrants have for a long time been tied up with the, uh, the troubles in Northern Ireland, and plus a lot of British colonial history. They're, they're viewed negatively. Um, but Western Europeans in general are viewed quite positively. And as, as, as in coming to this country and not leeching from it or sponging from it. Unfortunately, people from outside Europe don't get that same even-handedness. And so, following on from the scare stories about immigration, we started to see, um, as Nira was saying, talk about Britishness, British values. Gordon Brown, again, responding to the whole immigration, but, and, and plus his own Achilles here, which was 
perceived at the time, we laugh now, but he thought his main weakness was his Scottishness at the time. Um, but the, um, he felt that he, to shore that up, he had to start talking about Britishness, British values. We started seeing, this is while he was still Chancellor, we started seeing him talk about values, obligations, duties. He used the language like, we, we, we welcome immigrants, but they must play by the rules. Um, I asked the Home Office what these rules actually were, and no one could tell me. Um, I went to school in Britain. I was born here. Uh, I am, in a way, an economic migrant because I moved down from Hull to London in order to get a job. <laughs> I don't think... Uh, um, it, so if there's any overcrowding in London, as, uh, if, if, if London is full, then it's partly my fault. I accept my share of the blame. Um, but I went to school in a predominantly white school, um, it got, you know, uh, full English education, and no one ever taught me what these values were that we were supposed to live by. Um, the duties, the obligations, if one ever talks to the Home Office, they will say, well, you know, we would like people to do community work, be involved in the community. As a, I've never heard of any um, British-born or, you know, white British-born person ever being expected to or being ordered or, 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 uh, to fulfil community work. Encouraged, absolutely, but with the, the whole language about immigration has been not about encouragement, not about persuasion, it's been about lecturing and ordering. Um, in, in, um, we saw in 2004... Um, David Goodhart wrote a very long piece in Prospect magazine. He wasn't an expert on immigration or multiculturalism by any stretch, as was seen by the, uh, some of the fundamental flaws in his argument. But he was a man of the left, and a man who, um, decide, who, who, who uh, was ill at ease with a diverse Britain, a multicultural Britain. And in a way, I will respect him for his honesty, uh, because at the time it was what liberals didn't like to say. But I must say, in my time as an adult meeting a lot of white liberals, I found it... Um, when I... When I, um, I could mention you know, one example when I um, went to The Guardian, and I, I worked slag off The Guardian, it's a fantastic newspaper, and, and it's far more progressive than any other newspaper in the country. Um, I remember talking to someone about racism in Britain, and he said to me, um, you don't need to tell me anything about racism. I've read Eldridge Cleaver. And that was the answer. It was, it was this sense, the kind of the, the, the powerful liberal establishment <coughs> sense that we, are, we don't need to listen to black people. We can just tell them because we know best. We don't need to hear, that, hear anything from them direct because we can tell them how it all works. And, and in a sense, the, um, that, in, almost in, that intolerance of difference that was... Uh, that was represented then. That if you look at newspapers and the media and the fact that there were very few uh, non-white faces ever appearing or ever asked for their views or their opinions, it wasn't exactly surprising that um, someone who comes from that mould, David Goodhart, had been obviously nurturing these, these resentments and, and, and as he saw multiculturalism on the increase, he decided to react against it. Interestingly enough, as, as uh, on the comment desk at The Guardian, when Goodhart did come out with this piece, I, I, uh, Trevor Phillips gave me a call at the time and said, what is this Goodhart rubbish going on? What, what is he talking about? And within a couple of days, he'd written a piece for us which completely condemned David Goodhart. 
it says maybe more about Trevor Phillips maybe than David Goodhart, but within about six months he'd completely done a U-turn and backed David Goodhart completely. Um, not the first time Trevor Phillips has done a complete U-turn. Um, the, the, but the, this sense of, of difference and, and David Goodhart's confusion of, of race with nationality, confusion of you know, brownness with, 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 with nationhood, um, completely um, not getting the fact that there are lots of black people who were born here who know only this country and who speak English perfectly, um, who um, he completely didn't understand that, you know, that they see, have a completely different experience and that their expectations of this country are different to migrants and that they, like myself, feel very different about, feel that I have the right to be treated as an equal here. Um, I'm not an immigrant. I was born here. I've contributed my taxes and everything else. And like many other uh, uh, black and Asian people in this country. And that while, if we're continually seen as immigrants or not quite belonging here, then that's something that has a pernicious um, effect, which, and we see that in terms of employment statistics, police, uh, stop and search statistics, and everything else. When, um, a year after David Goodhart's um, article, the uh, bombs went off in London on July the 7th, Again, um, this formed another wave of, of, of uh, anti-multiculturalism protest. Ironically, people at the time looked to France. Why can't we be like France, they said, you know, where their difference is not allowed and people can't wear hijabs and no, show, no signs of faith allowed and everyone conforms to this one value of being French and everyone is treated as being French. So it was ironic that just about uh, three or four months later, the banlieue in Paris erupted in, in riots. So much for the French model of forcing everyone to be the same. But it didn't really, that didn't really, um, that, the subtleties of that didn't really um, work very much with the politicians and commentators. And they still kept this line, um, the social cohesion line, you know, that it's, it's, if you're here, you must integrate, you must do what, you know, you must do what, um, you, must, you must learn the language, you must do this, you must do that, play by the rules, whatever. Um, what it didn't, what the, uh, the main um, thing it, it completely overlooked was the fact that if one's looking at the most integrated uh, minority communities in Britain and the most separated, it's the ones which are the most integrated, which actually are the uh, uh, educationally and economically do the, do the worst. It's the African and the African-Caribbean communities which are really suffering. They're far more integrated if in, in all aspects in terms of um, inter, inter, interracial relationships and everything else. Far more integrated, yet at the same time uh, far, far performing far poorer educationally and economically. If you look at Asian, uh, even, even Muslim uh, um, communities, um, but certainly Asian, uh, uh, South Asian, Indian, Chinese communities, um, they are performing a lot better than, than the African and Caribbean populations. So there's this link, uh, and in a way it's quite ironic because a Daily Mail style, um, before 7-7, certainly before 9-11, they would hold up... Um, an, a typical Asian family as the ideal model that 
can't all immigrants be like this? Can't all, you know, and they would, they would point the fingers and say, black criminals, black, you know, uh, um, muggers, underachievers, uh, um, and, 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 and condemn black people for, for not having those, you know, for, for not having traditional values, a traditional, and, and, they, and I, I remember reading one piece in the Daily Mail which almost said, you know, why the Asians are more British than the British, because they held up Asian families to be strongly religious, strong family units, and, and that was a, a, a positive thing, and, and a strong work ethic and strong uh, commitment to education. So it's quite ironic that now all these values which were seen as a positive have now seemed to become a negative, and there's no po um, what holds... Um, a strong families together, strong family units together, is also the same kind of thing which holds communities together. If, um, if, you, have a, if you have a strong sense in your own family and your own identity within your family, then you will have a strong sense in your own community. Um, and in the way, the breakdown of the black family the, uh, and all the social disorder which has uh, come from that is, 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 is symptomatic of, of, of the breakdown of the black community at large and the poor economic performance. Um, if, I, if I move on to um, the way that the new, we, we've, since, uh, since, all, since July the 7th, we've seen new Labour moves that the Commission for Racial Equality has now been abolished. We've seen John Denham say that we've moved on, we can now move on from race, it's about the white working class. They've never quite defined what working class is, and I think which is a big flaw. Um, I'm still not clear that if a working class person gets some good GCSEs or goes to university, does that mean that he or she suddenly stops being working class? And therefore, um, I'm not sure. No one has quite been able to uh, to define it. And while that goes on, it's it's uh, we we get these notions of of um, you know can can. Um, Black or Asian people be considered working class or middle class, or do they fall within that? And why does one want to differentiate the white working class from labour class from the working class as a whole? It used to be that labour was the party of the working class, and in fact, if we're talking about the rise of the BNP, then the the, the main reason for that is that the BNP is the only party today that stands up for the working class for the last since since New Labour has has been around. Um, and been triangulating and chasing Middle England's swing votes, um, the working class has been abandoned. And it's not surprising that so many have been fooled, given that they're, social, they, they're from often socially deprived and poor, educationally, uh, poor educational backgrounds, that they've in effect been seduced by the, the warm words of the British National Party. Um, we've seen the British National Party now invited onto question time, um, the, 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 most, um, the, 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 the most cringeworthy part of question time was when it actually got onto the subject of, uh, of immigration. And the Labour, Conservative and the Liberal Party had nothing to say. They, 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 they're, 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 their words just completely fell apart. Their arguments fell apart. And Nick Griffin was completely in his element on that point with no one... Um, these years of triangulation and trying to appease the um, anti-immigration lobby just made them look absolutely foolish and at least Nick Griffin was the only person to say straight and directly what he would do, that the immigration was wrong and what he would do about it whereas the other parties were just trying to, you know, hopelessly come up with some uh, feeble lines. 
we now um, dangerously we're seeing the BNP become more and more accepted. That was that was that was uh, a part of it. We've seen now the, this. Um, uh, uh, Malcolm was mentioning that, that, that just, just last week the BNP in schools. A, a, a report has been written about you know a lot, saying that there's no problem with having BNP teachers in our classroom. No problem as a parent sending your five-year-old to, to class, not knowing if that teacher is a BNP member or not. And if the teacher is a BNP member, then that's, it's supposed to be okay for them to be caring for your, for your child. And that, that report was accepted without question by uh, Ed Balls and, 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 and has now has been adopted as policy. It's impossible for the way that the, the, the parties have been so intolerant of difference in their social cohesion agenda and everything else. It's impossible for them to talk intolerance, yet at the same time uh, condemning intolerant values. The more they talk about the intolerance, the more it fuels the, the, the feelings that, that lie behind the British National Party, the more it fuels that, those xenophobic sentiments. So having the, talking about intolerance on the one hand, supporting it, and then condemning the BNP is a very weak uh, and, 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 uh, argument which, is completely, which has completely unravelled. And while they continue to, do, to talk in those terms, the BNP will continue to march on. We need a complete U-turn in the way that parties talk about race, about difference, about immigration, if we are to stem the march, the rise of the BNP. Thank you. Um, thank you very much for that. Um, that brings the three speakers um, for opposed contributions, and now we'll open up for questions and comments from the floor. Um, we don't have a roving mic, but it should be um, small enough, as I'm demonstrating, for people to hear each other if they speak loudly enough. Um, so, if you have a comment or a question, can you put your hand up? Um, can you say who you are and who your question's directed at? And if it is a comment, please keep it um, reasonably short. We've only got about 20 minutes. Yeah. Hi, uh, my name is Diego Acosta from King's College. My question is to Joseph Harker. And I have a very quick comment and a question. And the comment is regarding those British values that you were talking about. Uh, the British government already produced a document in 2008 saying what those British values are. And basically they say the, the British values are the NHS, uh, fairness, tolerance, freedom of speech, and there is only one value that we can consider perhaps not that good, which is uh, disrespect for authority. Yet, uh, they say it is a healthy disrespect for authority, yet a keen sense of order. So those are the British values according to the British government. Um, and my question is, what is the role of the media uh, you're working for regarding? And I ask this question because what, what is the role of the media in explaining immigration? Because uh, the other day I was watching this very interesting documentary from the BBC, they were talking about immigrants in uh, the UK, but not only about immigrants, they were talking about European citizens in the UK who have the right of entry into the UK in order to work. They were talking about Portuguese people, Slovakians, Lithuanians, etc. It's a one hour documentary, it was very interesting, but they never mentioned that these people have the right of entry into the UK. So I think perhaps, and I'm and, and saying that because I have a legal background, but I think that is missing in the, uh, in, in the discourse in the media. Uh, this difference between who has the right of entry to the UK, the UK being part of the European Union, and who perhaps does not have the right to another discourse. Okay, so that, that would be my, my question. 
on, on your first point about these so-called British values of fairness and, and tolerance or whatever, it, it's, it's so patronising to think that Britain is the only country in the world that has those values. Um, it, 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 the, there's nothing which is particularly distinguishes Britain in, in, in those. It's Again, it's just a sense of oh, we are this beacon in the world. And freedom of speech, fine, unless you happen to be a Muslim demonstrator at Wooden Bassett or whatever, or, 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 or you know, in which case suddenly freedom of speech isn't such a good thing. Um, so respect for authority, I mean, I'm not, is Britain alone in that? Or, or like you say, is it a good thing or not? I, I don't know, but if it was, is Britain alone in that? The only thing I think about British values is, is, uh, is queuing. I think queuing is a particularly <laughs> British thing. And I, and I think it's actually a very positive thing because I think the idea of standing in line waiting your turn is a very positive thing, but I've, I've not been able to come up with anything else which is individually British. <laughs> uh, in, in terms of how the media reports, I, I thought, I'm not sure if it was the Evan Davis program that you the, the, the you're talking about. The one that they were talking about, uh, they were uh, picking uh, 12 immigrants who were working, they put them out and they put 12 British uh, people to try Yeah, to the work. day the immigrants left yeah, or something like that, yeah, which is yeah. a, a really interesting way of looking at the, yeah. the actual specifics of it. Yeah. I think a lot of, I thought, I thought that was a very positive program. I think a lot of, a lot of what um, the media has done has been to try this idea, we must have a debate, we must have a debate, you know. And, and we know that a debate means lots of people coming out with lots of bigoted ideas and about send them back and everything else and oh let's have these let's have these views heard. I mean again, the more people talk about it, the more these views get get um, spoken and aired. The the greater is that sense of intolerance towards my, and and it's not intolerance towards all racial groups. It's intolerance towards you know obvious minorities. At the moment, probably hijab-wearing Muslim women are the people who are most under threat by this, this talk about immigration. It's not, you know, um, a, a, a Polish person walking down the street won't be, won't be um, thrown a, a brick at or abused. Um, it will be people who are visibly different. And, whether, and again, whether they're born here or not is irrelevant, that they still look different. And you know, there was a very good panorama program a few months ago where a family moved into Bristol uh, claiming to, you know, said they said of the recent arrival, arrivals from Bangladesh. And that they got daily abuse by, in, in, the, in the working class community that they were based in. It, it's, it was actually quite terrifying, and that using the language of, oh, Taliban, you go back, you know, go back to where you came from, are you an Iraqi, are you going to blow me up? All this kind of media-fueled uh, uh, um, venom that was, that, was, that was poured on them. And they were just a random uh, couple going to Bristol, which was chosen for fairly random reasons, so that we, we have to watch it. And I think the media is, is completely irresponsible in, in all this. I think that they, as I said, the, the, the people who run the British media, not just in newspapers, but broadcast as well, don't, they, don't, they don't live in these areas, they don't mix with, uh, with, with uh, black or Asian people uh, as a whole. They, they, they may have gone to a dinner party with Zadie Smith once, but as far as they're concerned, that, that's, that, that's what, that, where their knowledge ends. And, and they... Um, and so that they, they get this very, very kind of black and white sense of, you know, that, 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 that they, don't, they don't worry about, they, don't, they suffer no consequences for reporting it. And they know that it feeds, that fuels that, feeds into that fear that a lot of people have about difference. And they're quite happy to do it because it keeps the sales up. Do you want to come back uh, to that? Uh, just very quickly, first of all, to pull up a plug, we are having a new year in the centre of the working together with. Um, a European uh, migrant organization, a conference at the end of this month about uh, migration, the media, and the message. So, of exactly these issues that you are interested about are going to be 
uh, discussed there. But in terms of British value, the most paradoxical one was when Blanket, the introduction to um, this white paper, the famous or infamous one, the secure border safe haven, he defined British uh, what is uh, to, to be specifically British is A, the language English, and secondly, human rights, which of course were incorporated very shortly before that into the British law, and he already partly suspended after the, <laughs> the 9 11. So, um, yes, I, th I think it's, it's very paradoxical. Yeah? Considering the current climate across Europe with um, the demonstrations in Latvia yesterday and the National Front in France getting 12% of the vote in, in the elections last week, where we have Gert Reader's party who are likely to do very well in the elections in Holland um, later this year, and where Mussolini's granddaughter is in coalition government with Berlusconi in Italy, do the speakers on the panel uh, believe that in that context, the electoral gains for the British National Party is inevitable in the general election, particularly in Stoke and Barking and Dagenham. And if it's not inevitable, what are the best strategies to use to defeat them? Do you want to start with that, Aaron? Sure. <laughs> 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 I'm myself, so yeah. Sure. Um, yeah, I mean, the. I don't think anything's inevitable. Um, I think I think it's it's. A matter of us to organise to stop it from happening, and I think um, we have to do that on two levels. The first level is is on the, the kind of um, grassroots level of actually preventing British National Party from being a legitimate presence locally on the streets, leafleting, etc., etc. Um, I think I think they need to be challenged on that in every possible way. Um, I think the wider um, issue is the way in which the, the BMP agenda has been legitimised by a mainstream political culture. Um, and as, um, as as I was saying, Joseph was saying, that the, you know, the, the greatest gift to the BMP is when, is when um, a, a new Labour minister says, well, there's a, you know, there is a legitimate point that they have. Um, you know, we have to listen to the people who are, who are voting for the BNP and take on board what they're saying, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, that kind of line, um, and gradually the you know the kind of argument that well, if you haven't got if you haven't got um, if you're you know waiting on account for a council house embarking, it is, it is basically because of the immigrants. That sort of thinking starts to starts to take hold. Um, and, and what we've seen in the, in the media as well is, uh, I mean, the question time thing is interesting. I think, I think the, first, the first appearance of Nick Griffin was staged in a, in a particular way. I think that was kind of transparent. But, but Nick Griffin and other members of the British National Party will be back on question time and will be back on other BBC programmes where all of that kind of attempt to, to challenge him won't be done as intensely. And he'll just gradually... And be seen as a legitimate political voice, and this is something the BBC has been talking about for some time. There's um, uh, a, a kind of internal document within the BBC from a couple of years ago, which which talked about the idea that the way BBC does politics um, had to change because it had become too focused on the political spectrum as defined by Parliament, and that actually 
that, re that actually represented less and less of the British population. So the BBC made a conscious decision to say, let's, let's bring in the extremes. Um, and that included what they described as the, as, as the BMP, as, as one group of extremists, and, on, and, and then what they see is on the other side, the Taliban, as another group of extremists, or people who are supportive of the Taliban. So they're creating this, this spectacle of, um, of the Taliban as a voice from the Muslim community and the BNP as a voice from this new concept that we have of the white working class, which is, you know, if you, if you listen to the way BBC or New Labour talk about the British population nowadays, you would think there's three kinds of people in Britain. There's black people, there's Muslims, and there's the white working class, okay? And they're the, they're the labels that get attached, and obviously one's defined by religion, one's defined by colour, um, and one's defined by a mixture of colour and class. So it's a very odd thing going on there, and it's about identity politics and the damage that identity politics, politics can do. And we're in a situation where the BNP have to be separated from this idea of being a representative of the white working class, and that's something that, that the BBC have been complicit in, the Labour Party have been complicit in, um, you know, uh, uh, we, need, we need the grassroots of the Labour Party, we need the trade unions to say actually real class politics is something very different. Um, whether, whether or not that happens to the extent it should, I don't know, but that would be my strategy. Yeah. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased you brought in identity politics because I think this is um, <coughs> very important when there is a conflation of social location, group identification, and normative and political value system. And um, even when New Labour tries supposedly to separate between them, like with the case of the so-called moderate Muslim and, and extreme Muslim, those that they pointed out as a moderate Muslim actually are associated with organizations that in other countries have been not only uh, oppressing women, but persecuting religious minorities there, very significantly, uh, and so on. So this is, um, this is all uh, very, very problematic. But the, the, the only way I, I mean, you say it's inevitable. As I tried in my talk to talk about, this is not just a local phenomena, and not even just a European phenomena. This is a phenomena which does relate to the whole structure of governability under uh, neoliberalism and the, what can be seen as some kind of defensive identity network which are constructed and um, which, which try to essentialize identities as the only thing that you can hold on to in a world that nothing can ever can be uh, controlled. But as I try to, to, to say at the end of my talk, the only way of doing it is to try and deconstruct these constructions of common sense. And the political parties are not doing that, which as uh, all, all speakers, I think, uh, pointed out in this question time with Nick Griffin was uh, illustrated in its most uh, kind of strong uh, way. And, and the BBC trying to make symmetry between the BNP and the Taliban and saying that in between the middle is the normal is even more frightening, I think. So, so I think um, that um, we can predict that it will happen. We have to resist as much as we can. And the 
we have to do it on a, on a multi-front from a, a resistance, a counter-demonstrations, and so on, and not to assume any territories are theirs by definition, but at the same time to, to work on it on, on multi-level. And, and obviously the media have central role in it. Yeah. I mean, I hope you're wrong, with your, and I hope that it's not inevitable. Um, but at the same time, it, it, it's difficult to overcome that, that message so, so late in the day. I, I, th I think that the main, the main problem that we're facing is that we're in the era of the android politician, where politicians, you know, Michael Foote died a, a, a couple of weeks ago. People ridiculed him, they laughed at him, but he stood for something. He had very definite values and you knew where you were. He was of the left, Tony Benn was of the left. Dennis Healy was of the centre left. You, you, whether you agreed with them or not, Margaret Thatcher was of the right. You knew where you were. They had very definite values, and they would argue their case, and they would argue it until they were blue in the face, and you know you could either take it or leave it. Since the new Labour era, we've got this thing. Everything is about what works. Everything is about just getting the kind of management <coughs> style politics. Management has re replaced politics. So when you're faced, um, you know, it it it, it was wor it worked nicely in, in the sense that it you know it, it got them elected and they could appear reasonable and it, it got them out of their kind of historic problem with the trade unions and the era of the kind of winter of discontent of 1978. But in terms of actually going and changing, making real change, it's 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 it was fairly ineffective. And in terms of um, be it in terms of. Whether whether we go to whether we side with a, with a, a right wing American government in going to Iraq again, let's just do a deal and let's just you know let's not make a let's not make a principled opposition in in terms of of, of uh, we've even seen it with the, the floundering of, of Gordon Brown and, and Tony Blair before that where they were deeply unpopular but no one wanted to no one had that passion no one had that fight in them to take these leaders on and and, and challenge them in the way that Michael Heseltine challenged. Margaret Thatcher, and, and, and despite the fact that um, you know, um, you know, Labour is, is, is po could possibly you know get a hung parliament at this election. To me, that the situation within the Labour Party long term is far worse than it was in the for the Tories in the 1990s, because they had Heseltine, Kenneth Clark, Michael Portillo, all there with definite political views who wanted to change things and wanted to take over. <coughs> New Labour has has lost has completely lost its soul. And, and when that gets worse is when you get when you get people like the BNP coming in and the, the coming into these fairly abandoned working class areas, and they again they, their instinct just like with George Bush is to do a deal to meet you halfway. We're not going to argue against them. We'll just try and you know sort out your issues. And I'm not saying there are issues because in terms of council housing there are very definite issues. And if migrants are coming in and getting council housing while poor working class people are having to wait for years, then to me that's wrong. If they've paid the taxes and obeyed the law and everything else, I think that's wrong. But that, there has to be an argument about that, and that's got, but there has to be a, an impassioned argument that um, we'll, we'll sort out the, kind of the, the management problems, but, we'll, 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 but absolutely we still support the migrants coming in. And the point you made about um, when we talk about immigration, perhaps on immigration, when, at what point is Britain too full? That argument goes out the window when you've got you know, 450 million people who have the right to come into Britain um, and, and without without any restrictions at all. So you can't, you know. Um, so it becomes an argument about whether you know what is right, what is right to do, and, and the morality of the whole issue has, has been lost. And that's 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 why we're suffering here. And with you know, and as I say, until that, until the. Um,
passion and, and comes back into politics and, 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 and the visions and, 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 and the, 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 the long-term visions for the, the future of the country. We, we are still not going to be able to challenge the rise of the BNP. And, you know, and, and we can campaign, let's bring people out in order to stop the BNP, but that's not a very positive way to motivate people to, to come out <coughs> to the polling booths. Yeah. Another question? Yep. I think I've put the um, point you just made there. Um, a comment and then a question. We had a by-election in the council ward in York, which is obviously a long way away, but it was uh, predominantly a uh, council housing area. And none of the main parties wanted to have a uh, debate because there was a BNP candidate standing. And none of them wanted to give the BNP candidate a platform to discuss the issues that were um, relevant to the constituencies of that war. Um, so the question is, for New Labour, until they acknowledge the fact that the white working class and the working class in, uh, in general do have a legitimate concern that they have lost out to the um, accession 11 immigrants in uh, economic terms, and that council housing hasn't really been on the um, agenda for the last 15 years, and the house that they believe is a council house was probably sold 15 years ago and has been rented out. Until they acknowledge their, their angst, they're always going to struggle to um, challenge the BNP in those areas. Here's your question too, sorry? Um, you know, the needs to acknowledge that. No, no, who's, who do you want to address? I think a lot of what you're saying is right. I mean, um, the, the problem is that New Labour doesn't even care about those votes anymore. You know, I mean, that's, that's the point. If the BNP are going into pubs and sitting down with people and chatting to them and getting to know them um, in, in those communities, and, and Labour Party has, has basically withdrawn. Um, and the fact that they're not turning up to debate the BNP, maybe is because of a, a kind of no platform thing in relation to the BNP, but it's also, it's also about just thinking that the real, the real fight is, is somewhere else. It's, it's in Middle England. Um, so, you know, what we don't, what, <coughs> while the BNP is doing genuine old-fashioned community political organising, uh, and no one else is, is even getting into those communities to do that kind of political normalising. They're going to they're going to have more success than anyone else. Um, you know, so so that's that's the first thing. I think it's it's partly about about you know the the loss of these passionate politicians from the past, but it's actually also just about get into those places and talk to people. I disagree with you that um, I I mean, there's on one level it's true that. Um, that the existing working class population in this country has lost out economically to um, migrants from Eastern Europe. But on another level, you've got to go beyond that um, and, see, and see a more complex picture. Um, because otherwise, you're, you're going to create this, this picture of competition between those different groups. Um, and you're going to end up dividing people who've got shared interests in a transformation of the way the labour market functions for poor people in this country. Okay. Um, it's not as simple as immigrants have come in and, and taken jobs or, or taken housing or taken um, public services um, and resources. It's actually about the way that, that 
um, the government has used those immigrants to, to bring about certain transformations that have, that have led to diminishing of, of resources for the working class, um, trans used immigration to transform the labour market. Okay? And so we've got to remember that, that, in a way, the new migrants and the existing population have got a shared um, political agenda in preventing themselves from being pitted against each other. And that's, and that's where um, you know, I would want to see trade unions um, being able to organise within the existing population alongside new migrant communities to actually build political alliances that can, that can bring about a real change for all of those communities. Because no one's going to no benefit from that kind of competitive approach. Um, but, you're, but you're right, there's no, there's no future in, in just not addressing these issues, not talking about them, not recognising the, you know, the fact that no mainstream politician anymore talks about the need for council housing, etc, etc. Probably got time for a couple more questions, if, if there are any. Maybe I'll just, if not, I'll just add to, to that last one. What's, what I found, it's a media issue again, I found really troubling this being this equation with you know, white working class, all their problems are due to immigration. And we, we had this um, BBC TV series a year or a couple of years ago, um, and it was, you know, what, we'll go and examine the white working class of the forgotten population. And every programme, it was talking to fairly uneducated, uneducated people saying, it's all the immigrants. And this, this, this um, and it culminated with a, a Nick Griffin interview on Newsnight at the, at the end of the week, as, you know, as, 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 and him almost again as a representative, the authentic representative of, of the white working class voice. And Channel 4 had a programme about the truth about immigration um, shortly afterwards. And at the same time, I think we had a couple of programmes about the 40th anniversary of the Rivers of Blood speech, which again made the same, you know, were very equivocal about how they treated Enoch Powell's message. Um, I don't believe that the... I, don't, I think that the white working class has issues which should be addressed, and I think that the problem behind it is that New Labour has abandoned the white working class. But I think that the, in blaming, in being allowed to rep repeatedly be given airtime to blame in the, all their problems on immigration, I think that the media has been completely complicit in this whole right, uh, this whole far right agenda. And indeed, it's very, you know, there, there is a, you can say there's an authenticity about whether people feel that it's immigrants' fault or not. But I mean, I'm, I'm, um, I've worked as a, in, in the black press for, for several years. And I've heard, this, I've heard very similar things by, you know, talking to black youngsters and they say, well, what's, what's your problem? Why haven't you got a job? Well, it's all racism. And I said, no, it's not all racism. There is racism around, but, you know, get a, get a job. There are, these problems are not insurmountable. You can overcome them. Just go, go to school, get an education, get a, get a decent job. And, and you can't, and, 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 and in a way, it's, it's a mirror image that white working class is now being indulged and allowed to think that everything, every problem they have is because of some immigrant. And in the 1970s it happened, and I saw it with the rise of the National Front, then it was a kind of a fringe thing. Now it's gone mainstream, we see radio, phone-ins, daily, you know, what's the problem, should we allow this or whatever, mixed in with um, stories about Islamic extremism and fueling the whole, the, the, the whole xenophobic agenda. And I think it's, the, uh, when, um, when, uh, when Nick Griffin went on Question Time, it was quite, I mean, the other thing I, I do find a, a very troubling trend, it, it, not, not only the, the amount of airtime that people have been given, but 
these used to be quite shameful. People, used to, you know, no one would, no one would admit to being a racist or ha holding racist views, and they would always try and talk politely about whether they believed it or not. But it wasn't, it wasn't for, you know, it wasn't polite conversation. And now we're, give, we're hearing these airways given over, and it's and it's become racism has become now just another opinion. It's just, it's no different to any other, you know, well, I, yeah, but I don't like Nick Griffin, but, you know, I don't, but I don't like the Tories either, so why not, what's wrong with having him or not, you know, and, and they see, that, that we've, we seem to have lost that argument about what is dangerous and evil about racism and, that, that, you know, what makes the Holocaust different to what Stalin did in, in, in the gulags, what makes this, this targeting, what makes Rwanda different, what makes apartheid different, what makes slavery different, it, it's the, the sense of, you know, picking on people because of their, not because of what they do, but of because of who they are. And that argument has completely got lost and the, the BNP agenda, again, has not been challenged on this. And we ran a piece by Mark Thompson just before the Nick Griffin debate on Question Time. He, didn't, he talked about they're a legal party, they're a legal entity, they've got two MEPs. The actual principle of having a racist on there and the views that he was espousing and the platform that he was being given he didn't address at all. It was as if he was, again, no, no care, no thought, no, no principles, no politics there. It, just, it, it was just another decision based on some, you know, you weigh up this factor and then you weigh up that factor. And I think, again, that's a, been a really damaging and troubling development in the last few years. What is important, <coughs> however, is to remember that this common sense is not limited to white working class. I live in Dolston, and we had, a few years ago, a a play which was based on working with local children, which was called Crime and Punishment in Dolston. And it was about the relationship between the black community and the Kurdish and Turkish communities in Dolston. And I had the same experience among um, um, students of mine when I was teaching sociology of racism. Uh, some of them were uh, blacks from uh, Hackney, and when it was anti-black racism, they were right on. When it was police racism, they were right on. When I started to talk about racism against refugees and about against migrants, they talked to me the same rhetorics that was used against them by the white working class. And I think that it's not incidental that some non-whites want to join the BNP because this is a much wider common sense. Nobody is immune from racist targets. I come from Israel. Victims of racism are very often the first one to become racist themselves because they are already constructed in this kind of uh, uh, discourses of, of, of exclusion, <coughs> inferiorization, and, 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 um, and discrimination. And it is very important to remember that it is not just a question of black and white when we are talking now about racism, nor even just about the question of culture and religion about Islam. On the same day that the Daily Mail, that was mentioned before, came out with the names of the murderers of Stephen Lawrence, finally there is a black in the Union Jack, and at least blacks with middle class aspirations are now part of us. They had some horribly racist articles against um, the Roma who were in Dover on, on that day. And suddenly the boundaries of the nation were, were the focus of this kind of exclusionary and, and racist uh, uh, discourses. There are may, many different discourses of, not just of racism, but of discrimination and disadvantage. And one of the 
the sorry thing is that this new uh, Equality <coughs> and Human Rights Commission, which in some ways were able to have this intersectional approach about oppression, discrimination, um, exclusion, and have, is kind of missing the point and, and, and just collapse it all, flatten it all into some kind of a mainstreaming. So, so um, I think it's very important that we don't fall into the trap that it is just about the white working <coughs> class. It is about the British public, it is about the European public, it is about the global public. In Africa, ethnicization of states and racist discourse we know not only that it brought into kind of genocide, but it's all over the place, in South Asia, in, in everywhere. This is why it's very important not to see it as an inherent characteristic of whites. And, and, and I think sometimes in this kind of anti-racist, simplistic anti-racist discourse, it, it, it becomes attribution of people instead of uh, social and political discourse. Okay. Thank you very much. Um, I think we're going we're gonna to end there. I'd like to thank again all three speakers very much for their, for their contributions. Um, I hope we've gone some way or done something to show some different perspectives from what you normally see in the media on xenophobia, new labour and immigration. Thank you very much. <laughs>